Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Nick Douse is the founder of Honeyfingers and has been a beekeeper for over 12 years. He is an absolute expert and shares so much wisdom in this episode, everything from how to get started with backyard beekeeping to also simple things that you can do even if you don't have a backyard and you've just got a balcony to help our bees. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Nick. Before we chat all about your journey to beekeeping, I wanted to ask you to explain the importance of bees and why they're just so much more important than just having a whole lot of fun in the backyard. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on to talk about bees, my favorite topic. Honeybees and humans have a really long and interconnected history. There's examples of honeybees and humans interacting in cave art in walls in Spain that are 10,000 years old. And it's as if um, when humanity walked out of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago, that the bees followed us. And wherever we've gone, the bees have come with us. So it's a really rich history. And before the availability of beetroot and sugarcane and artificial sweeteners, honey used to be the only sweetener available or one of the only sweeteners for many communities. So bees have always had this, um, you know, really special role in within humanity. And more than that, they pollinate our food. So what that means is that they increase the yields from plants and trees that grow fruits and nuts and berries that we consume. So if you've got a tree without a beehive close to it that's producing almonds, for argument's sake, if you put a beehive there, you really increase the yields of that tree because the bees will fertilize every flower and each of those flowers will then turn into a seed or in this case, a nut. And so they've become very important for us in terms of food pollination. And it's probably the single most important thing for us at the moment in terms of food security is the pollination of food by honeybees. And and so there's a, a really wide variety of foods that they pollinate for us. And it's a scary prospect when you think about declining insect populations and bee populations and the impact that's going to make upon food security. And we're seeing this at the moment with varroa mites. So, for example, the almond growers know that without beehives, their yields will be significantly lower. It poses a, a real problem. Yeah, when I was doing my research for this episode, it was I found a statistic that said that bees are responsible for one third of the food that we have on this planet. Yeah, so that's that's how deeply they are involved and enmeshed in our in our food production. So there's a lot of foods that you wouldn't think that are pollinated by bees that are indeed pollinated by bees. And for beekeepers, it's an incredibly lucrative business. So a beekeeper gets paid more essentially for putting out 
their hives onto someone's almond crop for two weeks than they do making honey for a year. So, yeah, there, it's, there's a lot of food that's being pollinated by bees and there's a lot of money caught up in it too. Wow, so it's like almost like you rent out your hive to a farm. It's exactly what you do. There's brokers. There's brokers out there who talk to the big end of town with the beekeepers and they say, I need these many hives. And they come up with a, a price and, and, and away you go. But on a smaller scale, you also see it in the city. So I know that we have our beehives on some community farms and on some charities that grow food for people who really need good, healthy food. And the yields in those gardens are also increased. And it's not just the yields, but of course, the bees can only survive in really lovely, healthy environments. And of course, they're the type of environments you want to grow your fruit and veggies in. It's kind of like a, you need it to be happy for the bees, but also you need them to have lots of amazing flowers and different varieties for them to also go and pollinate. So it's kind of like a creating a harmony for both of them. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And even in the city, you'll just see, I don't know if your nonna's got a lemon tree out the back. If there's bees around, you get many, many more lemons, which is also a lovely, sweet side effect of, of keeping bees in the city and in the backyard. No, it is. I remember during COVID when I got into gardening, like everybody else, when I was struggling to get my pumpkins to actually become, like to grow pumpkins, my pumpkin vine, I had a friend who said, we've got to pick off the flower and you've got to put the two flowers together to create the pumpkin, which is pretty much just what bees are doing for us. They are the gardeners that are getting out there and creating all of these amazing fruits and vegetables for us. But we don't actually think of it like that. When we see a failing crop, we kind of go, oh, well, we must not be watering it enough or it must need some more nutrients or something like that. But it's also, it can often be down to the lack of pollinators in that area. Absolutely. And it's so much more work walking around manually pollinating flowers than it is letting your happy bees do it. But I think that that term happy is really key here. So because there are so many humans on earth now, and because um, not many of us grow our own food, there's this huge sort of demand for and pressure to grow a lot of food. And as such, you know, industrial agriculture has boomed. And alongside that, industrial beekeeping has boomed. So whereas once upon a time, perhaps a beekeeper might have, you know, a few hundred hives, the big operations now have thousands and some even top 10,000. And it's really a numbers game. So you're talking about beehives being put on pallets, being put on the back of trucks and being shipped out to places and they go on to almonds for two weeks and then they go somewhere else. So But that isn't necessarily the best thing for bees and has probably, I'd argue, has contributed to the problems that that honeybees are sort of facing that's been pretty well documented around the world. And I think it's important to note that it's not just bees that are having a health crisis, it's insects in general. The numbers, it's generally agreed, have been declining now for decades. And a lot of that is caught up with this broadacre, highly interventionist agricultural practices that we have and the stresses it puts on bees. So, for example, because there's so many bees coming together all the time, it's really easy for them to transfer diseases between each other. So in COVID terms, there's no social isolation for bees anymore if they're being trucked around, whereas backyard bees, 
there is. So you you might only have one hive or two hives in your backyard, and then there may not be another hive for 100 metres. And that's actually super healthy for bees, and it's one of the ways that backyard beekeeping can contribute positively to the health of honeybee populations. So we need to keep them all together. Now, Nick, you have got such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to beekeeping. How long have you been beekeeping for and how did this, yeah, how did you get into it? Um, actually, Honeyfingers turns 10 this year, which is super exciting. Happy birthday. Thank you. And we'll be celebrating with a 10-year survey of all the many things that uh, we've done in April. And I think I've been beekeeping for 12 years and I'm 52 this year. And when I was growing up in the 70s in these really big backyards in the Gold Coast where before it was all, I don't know, jazzy, but it was just sort of (laughs) backwater where, you know, people were starting families people would keep chooks in their backyards and they'd have vegetable patches and they'd keep bees. And so two of my neighbours, Robbie and Malcolm, had bees and I was stung so many times growing up and I got to see Malcolm chasing swarms and I got he was the first person to show me how to extract honey. And so I think it sort of was always there in my mind, you know, like bees and beekeeping and I've always been fascinated with animals and creatures and bees are definitely there. And then I started to really enjoy all these different types of honeys. And so I had this little honey collection in my cupboard and my family just bought me an introduction to beekeeping course over two weekends. And it just went from there. There was no plan. There was no strategy. It was all very organic. And it, it just sort of happened because when you start to beekeep and look inside a hive and understand all these really quite beautiful but complex behaviours within a honeybee superorganism, if you're inclined to be mesmerised by that kind of thing, it's endlessly fascinating. I feel like there's so much that bees can teach us as well because they are often one of the first to kind of feel the, I don't know, the impacts of the weather changes and what's going on and they're so intuitive. Yeah, it's amazing. Like if, if you're sitting next to a beehive and the clouds kind of run over, all of a sudden there'll be like 200 bees at that hive entrance all trying to get in before it rains and it's like, oh, it's definitely going to rain, you know. And um, there is a lot they can teach us about our environments and and because we're talking backyard beekeeping the urban ecology. A lot of people don't think about a food web in the city or urban ecologies and urban food ecologies, but they're all there. And bees make you develop good observational skills. So to be a good beekeeper, you have to observe your bees. You have to keep an eye on them and you use all your senses. So not only are you looking at them, but you're listening out for them because they make different sounds during a beekeeping inspection and sometimes if they're ill they can smell bad but most of the time they smell fantastic and of course you use touch so you we don't we try not to use gloves when we beekeep not because we're macho but because it slows us down and so you're very very mindful of where your fingers and your body are as you work And that's this other wonderful thing that 
that bees teach us is when you're being a beekeeper, you're exposed to these great risks as you are in life. You know, there's 50,000 stinging insects that you're about to literally rip the roof off to their home and you go in and you have to learn how to be calm and compassionate while you beekeep in order to avoid being stung. And it works. Like if you take your time and you're relaxed and you move slowly and, you know, you don't teach the bees to hate you, you don't act like a jerk, There's uh, you're much less likely to be stung. So there's all sorts of things that they can teach us. And incidentally, I've learned the names of lots of local birds that interact with beehives. So they steal the bees either on the wing or they come down and peck them from the entrance. I've found marble geckos and other uh, lizards that live around beehives. So it's it's just this wonderful thing. And, of course, the flowers. I've, you know, never really took a lot of notice. But now when I walk down the street, if I hear lorikeets in the trees, I'm like, lorikeets, they eat nectar. And you look up and you see that there'll be a spot of gum in full bloom. And you clock that. It's like, oh, wow, okay, so we've got a lot of nectar in this neighbourhood at this time of year. And it's just this wonderful way of, opening your eyes up to the landscape in ways in which you may never have before. No, I'm sure you can probably hear all of the birds tweeting in the background of my recording because I, that is exactly what I've got going on at the moment. I've got a lot of noisy miners and a lot ah. of lorikeets in, I don't, I think it's a bottle brush outside my window. So there is lots going on here. But I wanted to know for people who want to get into backyard beekeeping, they've got this curiosity like yourself, um, but before they literally go and stick their hands into a beehive, what should they be doing to kind of, yeah, get started? I think that it's a really good idea to see if you can join like a, a beekeeper to go on an inspection or to go and have a look at beekeeping clubs, open day or regular meetings. So there's lots of beekeeping clubs around Australia in the city as well as regional areas. They're always interested in taking on new members and quite a few of them will actually run apiary days. So they'll open up their hives on specific days and they invite interested people to come in and have a look. Or you can find um, other beekeepers who operate beehive tours or beehive inspections. They're called lots of different things. And that way you actually get to go along and have a look and get your hands on before you commit to anything. And then if you've gone beekeeping uh, with a beekeeper or with a beekeeping club and you decide, yeah, this is something I'd really like to do, my first bit of advice is read, read, and then when you finish reading, read some more. So you've got a really good theoretical background and then do a course, which is just going to reinforce everything that you've already learned. And you can either do the course through your beekeeping club, but there's also a lot of beekeepers who offer these courses as well. But it's really important to get the theory up. Like it's really great to at least know the basics and read across a whole bunch of things before or as you're doing the course because it just helps you get up to speed that much faster and there's so much to learn and it's also super enjoyable so get reading and go beekeeping with a beekeeper 
No, I feel like inside the beekeeping, like the beekeeping has such a strong community. I'm a part of a couple of different Facebook groups, even though I'm not a beekeeper myself, just because I'm so curious and I'm so interested in it. And everybody, it's like this amazing sharing circle. Everybody is so willing to give a helping hand or say, I've got an issue with this, or has anybody had any experience? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This and that's just kind of from a, I don't know, an internet perspective. And then you're right, there are so many different beekeeping groups around Australia. So is Facebook the best place to find your local group or is it just through a typical Google search or where should people be looking for their local, yeah, their local beekeeping group? Well, I think that you start with the the social media or internet platform that you feel most comfortable with. So if you're a Facebook user, there's that's probably where most of the, the beekeeping groups are. But if you just want to Google and have a look around for websites and other little chat groups, that's an option. And I sort of taught myself watching a lot of beekeepers on Instagram. So there's no clubs per se, but there are these great beekeepers who get on there and show you what they're doing. And I'm sure they're doing it on TikTok too, but I sort of draw a line around how much (laughs) you can be on. But um, I'd say whatever you feel most comfortable with, go down that channel and there will be, yeah, a lot of people there. And Facebook, I think, is probably the number one okay. platform for, for that dem- beekeeping demographic. No, no, that's that's great information. And you've spoken a lot today about honeybees in particular, but there's also a lot of different native bees in Australia. What are the main differences for our listeners between the, well, they're not two varieties, but the two, I don't know what you'd call them, two different groups or two different species? I I don't know my language. Well, I think it's important to note that the bees that we've been talking about are Apis mellifera, or known as the European honeybee or the Western honeybee or sometimes a common honeybee. And that's an introduced species to Australia. As I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, um, wherever humans have gone, the, the honeybees seem to follow. They're part of a group that are called social insects. And so when you're talking about honeybees, regardless of whether they're the European honeybee or the Asian honeybee or the giant honeybee or the dwarf honeybee or even the Australian native stingless honeybees, it's only the social bees that produce enough honey for humans to rob. And I use that term rob deliberately because it's an active choice that we make to take that honey from the bees. The reason that um, I talk about the European honeybees is that I'm based in Melbourne and Australia's native honeybees, which are social insects, they only live in the subtropics and the tropics, so about Sydney and above. You can't even keep them in Canberra over winter because it's too cold. But in Australia, there are probably more than 2,000 species of what we call solitary bees. So they're bees that live, as the name suggests, 
by themselves or maybe in small groups. And there are many and varied beautiful bees in that group. And you're absolutely correct. We need to look after them too, which basically means providing a variety of different landscapes for those species, which you could even do in your own backyard. And because they do, I think that they're feeling the impacts of, you know, land clearing, deforestation, urbanization, and also they do compete with European honeybees. So as beekeepers, um, you'll often see us sort of putting up bee hotels and similar things for all the native bees to live in while we keep our uh, European bees in the block next door. No, I think for everybody who's kind of, I don't know, really not sure about the difference between them, if you're picturing them, a European honeybee is your traditional yellow and black little fluffy bumblebee, whereas the stingless native bees often look like a little fly. So that's why I think we can often get confused and think, oh, shoot, get away from me. But you have to go, no, I love you. I want to nurture you. I want to give you all of the flowers that I can and help you as much as possible. Yeah, they are. They are super cute, the native bees. And if you zoom in, they even look like little robots. I always think they look like robots. If you were to draw a robot bee, that's what it looks like. But to give you an idea of the yields of the different species, the Australian stingless bees may only produce like between one or two litres of honey a year. So the yields from those hives are, are quite modest. And, of course, if you're robbing honey from a hive that only produces that much honey, it's a pretty big impact on that family of bees, whereas the European honeybee can produce, you know, between 13 to 100 kilograms depending upon where they are and what the season is like. So it's um, they produce a lot more honey and obviously you can take some in the knowledge that they've still got enough to get themselves through winter. Amazing. And then I've got more questions for you, but I don't want to take up too much time because I feel like I'm just using you as like my personal bee expert for all of my personal questions right now. So I hope that everybody else feels the same way. But when you say, for example, you don't, you might have an apartment or you might have a small space and you don't particularly want to get your own beehive, but you want to give back to the bees, how could we be designing a garden or what should we be planting or what kind of elements should we be adding to our backyards to help the local bees in our area? Well, there's this term that, uh, beekeepers love which is melliferous so you plant melliferous flowers which is or plants which are be uh, flowers that require pollination by honeybees and there's lots of really really common plants that the bees love so for example rosemary is really easy to grow and the bees love it there's lots of different types of lavender that the bees love the citrus trees bees love salvias bees love and oftentimes there's a bit of a crossover say between there's this beautiful solitary australian native bee called the blue banded bee which is quite an iconic charismatic native bee and it loves salvias and all the blue flowers but so do european honeybees so it's this wonderful example of you know planting out for both species and it's not just about um looking at the plants that do produce nectar and pollen, it's about when they produce nectar and pollen. So if you can look at some plants that flower at different times of the year, then you've got a really nice nectar flow that's running 
through the whole year, particularly in winter. So that's the time when it's quite cool. The bees don't fly as much. Um, they're inside eating their own honey. But on sunny days, if they can get out and get a little bit of nectar and a little bit of pollen, it's a real bonus. So anything that flowers through winter as well is a definite thumbs up. And, of course, you get to sit there and then all of a sudden pay attention to what's going on in the garden. So you'll be like, oh, it's a bee. The bees are we love the them. Yes. We love them. And is this a myth that we should be leaving a little bit of water, like a little bowl of water out for the bees? Oh, no, that's absolutely true. So bees, like if you're a beekeeper, under the Apiary Code of Practice, one of the things you have to provide your beehive is a supply of fresh water because when it's hot, the bees go and collect the water, take it back to their hive and regurgitate it and they fan their wings like an evaporative cooling system to keep the brood nest cool. So the brood nest or where the baby bees are kept it can't go above a certain temperature. It can't get too hot and it can't get too cold. But if it gets too hot, the brood dies. And if all the comb gets too hot, it melts. So the bees need a lot of water to keep their hive nice and cool. So we always, um, beekeepers are always telling people to put water out in summer and in hot days. And not only to put water out, but to put something on the top that the bees can land on and safely drink from. Otherwise, they'll drown. So, for example, you can put a eucalyptus branch in there and the bees will have leaves and twigs or you can put cork in there or you can hang some material like hessian over the side or you keep it quite shallow with lots of rocks in there so the bees actually land on and drink the water from the rocks. Otherwise, they can fall in and drown, which is very sad. Yeah, that would completely be heartbreaking and defeat the whole purpose of what you're yeah. trying to do. So give them a little ladder so that they can, and a runway, so they can land somewhere and that they can get out nice yeah, and easily. And, and try to put it in the shade. So they prefer cold water because, of course, it's already cool and makes it easier for them to cool it down when they get back to the hive. And a big hive will drink, can drink like a litre a day. It's extraordinary, but they drink a lot of water. Great. I'm going to remember that next time that it is a nice hot day. Now, my last random question is, if you're somebody that discovers a hive in a random place, like in a roof, in a gutter, I saw on your Instagram that in the bottom of a bin, I think you had a picture of, what, what should we be doing if we find a random hive? Should we leave it and just go, well, they're happy there? Or should we be calling somebody? And who do we call? We don't call wires, do we? No, I don't think wires will, will respond to that. So I'm going, to, <laughs> I'm going to do a little bit of um, some terminology here. So beekeepers use the term hive to describe a managed family of bees. So that's a, they're bees in a beehive. A nest is the term beekeepers use when you're describing a family of bees that is, for example, living in a roof or have set up home in a compost bin, but they're not being managed. And in spring, we see a lot of swarms. And swarms are when you see that basketball-sized cluster of bees hanging from a branch or hanging from a fence or, as you mentioned before, hanging on the base of a wheelie bin, which is what can happen in the city. Swarms are a little bit different because what's happening is Imagine that you've got a mother colony and they've outgrown their hive. 
and they literally divide in two. So they send out the queen mother with about half the bees um, and they go off to establish a new home and they leave behind an emerging queen, a little princess, if you like, with about half the bees. And they don't just move into a new home. They, they move to a location where they set up what we call a swarm cluster, which is, for example, hanging off the branch. And from there, they send out scout bees to identify a new location for them to move to. And during that time, when you can see them as a big cluster on a branch, they're very placid, they're very easy to catch and collect. And that's when you should get in touch with a beekeeper or a beekeeping club, or there's a service online called swarmpatrol.com and you take a photo, describe where it is, upload it, and then there's all these beekeepers who are subscribers to Swarm Patrol and they run around and pick them up. But don't call the pest control person because they will murder all those bees and it's very, very sad. Get in touch with a beekeeper, a beekeeping association, or a service like Swarm Patrol. Amazing. So that is just for when they're a swarm. When you have them as a nest, so say, for example, unwanted in a roof, would you also call Swarm Patrol then as well or would you just leave them? Look, it, it honestly depends on the situation. A lot of times there's, there's this wonderful statistic I heard, which is that in Australia 70% of our bee populations are not managed. They're wild and only 30% are managed. So that means that there's actually bees living around us all the time and we often don't notice. If you've got a situation where your honeybees are quite happy living in a wall cavity and they're not bothering anybody and you haven't got sticky stuff dripping through your roof and they're not stinging people, I mean, I'd suggest that you kind of leave them and consider it a kind of a cohabitation experiment, you know, can we live closely together? If they do become problematic, there are specialist beekeepers who do removals. So it's a, they do keep their own beehives, but they tend to specialize in removals. So they have all the equipment to essentially take a little bit of your building apart to get access to the nest. They cut the nest out and they try to keep a lot of it as intact as possible they put that comb inside frames, they put those frames in a beehive, they take them away and they rehouse them. They often sell them to other beekeepers. So if you can get in touch with a bee removalist or bee removals, that would be the most ethical thing to do. Because if you just go up there and spray them, you're not actually, not only are you murdering the bees, which is horrible, but you're not actually removing the honeycomb and other materials. And what often happens is bees just move back in again once the poison has sort of got to a level where the bees can tolerate living with it and you get the same problem over and over again. So it's better to get a bee removalist specialist in. They'll remove them all and they'll identify what's going on in terms of how the bees are accessing the space and they block it up when they close it up. Amazing. Great. I will put all of that information as well in the show notes so that people can kind of remember as well and they can go, okay, nest this, swarm this, and then we can go from there. But my final question for you, Nick, was what is one actionable thing that our guests can do tomorrow to help save our planet? I would encourage you to buy, from a beekeeper's perspective, local honey where you know that it's come from a beekeeper that's practicing sustainable practices. 
and or buy organic produce because you know that there's much less chance of bees being harmed during the sort of cultivation of those foods. So buy local, buy organic. That is great. Simple, actionable tips that I'm sure that everybody can put into play tomorrow. Thank you again for coming on the pod. Thank you so much for having me and I hope you enjoy those birds in the tree just outside. Keep an eye out for the bees. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 